share the gospel wherever we go, to witness to folks wherever we go to, so that Jesus can also be Lord and Savior of their lives as well. The story is told that a blonde, her TV breaks. So she heads to the electronics store to buy a new one. She tells the salesman when she gets to the store, I want that one. He shakes his head at the blonde and says, sorry, we don't sell the blondes. Frustrated, the blonde goes home and dyes her hair brown. And she returns to the store that afternoon and she tells the same salesman, I want that TV. Again, he tells her that the store doesn't sell the blondes. She leaves, frustrated. And so the next day, she comes in with black hair. And she asks the same salesman for the TV. Again, to her frustration, she receives the same answer. I told you we don't sell the blondes. She says, well, that's it? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. How do you know I was a blonde? The salesman said, because that's a microwave. <laughs> now, for those who are blonde, don't go out of here all mad at the preacher. But when it comes to Jesus and becoming his follower, you are who you are. You're either born again or you're lost without Christ. And I will tell you there's no in between. Just like with a blonde trying to change her hair color, she was still a blonde. Some of you, you see, go to church, you carry your Bible with you, you look like that you're all together when it comes to Jesus, but you're not. Because you see, you're either born again or you're not. You are who you are today. Only Jesus can change you from the inside out. Jesus is clear in John 3.3 3, that unless we are born again, we will not see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word this morning, for its power, for its truth, for the message we're about to read and study. And Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We thank you, Lord God, that it is the sharp two-edged sword of God that pierces even to the marrow of our own bones. Father, I pray that you will once again use your word today to speak to us this morning by and through your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We continue our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. We come to part two of a message that we started last week, and we're concluding today. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. And I want to give you a short recap of last week's message. Some of you have slept since then, I hope. Uh, some of you perhaps were not able to be here last week, so... We said that last week that the overall passage deals with spiritual maturity. But remember, it is not addressed to Christians. This passage is addressing Jewish unbelievers who have the intellectual or head knowledge about Jesus, but have not made a faith commitment to following him. They were still in bondage to Judaism. And though they had heard the gospel, they had not decided to follow Christ. We had asked the question last week, remember, that's often connected with this passage that many have asked, is it possible for a believer to lose their salvation based on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 8? And the answer is easy, based upon the fact that this passage is not addressing Christians and instead addressing unbelieving Jews. And it says right there in that passage, and we'll look at it in detail this morning. So the author isn't contrasting immature Christians to mature Christians, but instead is contrasting Judaism and Christianity. Last week we said there are four major points in our text that lead us to a warning against falling away. Last week we examined the first two. First of all, there was the problem. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. The problem can be summed up in a nutshell. The author desired to teach them more about the Old Testament priest Melchizedek. And though there was much more for him to explain to them 
about his priesthood and how Jesus relates to that priesthood. But it was hard to explain in deeper terms because the Bible says they had become dull of hearing. Now the Greek translated dull of hearing is a settled state of spiritual stupidity. In other words, the longer they stood on the precipice of deciding to follow Jesus and not doing it, the harder their heart became and more spiritually sluggish they became. In fact, they had become spiritually dull and could no longer be taught the deeper truths of God. Therefore, the Bible says in these passages of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 5, it says that they had become so dull that they could no longer teach the gospel and the New Testament truths. The Bible says it disqualified them for teaching the gospel and the truths of the New Testament. So the fact they didn't even understand, folks, the foundational truths, the ABCs of Judaism, their own faith, was evident by their blindness and unwillingness to the very fulfillment of it in Jesus in the New Covenant. Let's start by reading Genesis chapter 3, and this will explain to you some of the things that the writer of Hebrews is saying. Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3, did I say Genesis? We're not going to Genesis. Now Genesis is good, but don't go there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Listen to what the Bible says here. Listen to what Paul says. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under tutor. It means we're no longer under the law. The law brought us to Christ, and now we are in Christ. We are the new covenant in Christ. But the fact is that what he was writing about here is that they were still on the milk. They were still babes. They had not advanced to solid food. In other words, Judaism is the infancy, the milk, which they were to set aside in order to go to the maturity by faith found in Jesus Christ in the new covenant. That was in a nutshell. You say, well, how come it, didn't, it took you longer last week to explain it? Don't worry about it. The solution, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Because of God's grace, and as we said last week, but God, right, because of God's grace, the author of Hebrews gives them a solution. So he encourages them to leave or put aside the elementary principles of Christ. He's saying put aside the ABCs of Judaism. Put aside the law. Put aside the provisions and principles of the old covenant. And though you've repented from your dead works, the Bible says, they were encouraged and taught in the New Testament to repent, to turn from wickedness. That would eventually lead to death. But the Old Testament, you see, was only the first half of repentance. Because the New Testament, the new covenant in Jesus Christ, repentance is meaningless in and of itself without faith in Jesus Christ. Why is that? We said it last week. Because Jesus is the only way to God. Not only do you have to repent of your wicked sins, not only do you need to confess your sins, but you need to fasten your faith on Jesus. And remember, in these passages, he goes on to list four other New Testament, te Old Testament teachings that need to be laid aside. The first was they need to lay aside the washings or the ceremonial washings uh, of, of the law that God had provided for them in the Old Testament. But they need to lay those things aside because God had already provided Jesus in the new covenant. The second was they needed to set aside the laying on of hands where a person would bring an animal sacrifice into the temple for the forgiveness of sin. They would place their hands on the head of the animal uh, that was to be sacrificed to symbolize that they also were sinners. But as believers, we don't have to identify with Jesus by laying our hands on him, do we? Because he is our perfect sacrifice. And instead, Jesus identifies us as we lay hold of Jesus by faith. So we don't have to lay our hands on Christ any longer. We know he's the perfect sacrifice. The third Old Testament truth was to lay aside the resurrection of the dead. You say, well, pastor, isn't that a good thing? Well, the Old Testament was incomplete. 
It taught there is life after death. It talked about rewards for the good, judgment for the wicked, but not much more than that. But as you know, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, resurrection was a major and detailed of all the doctrines found. It's the most major doctrine found in the New Testament. John 11.35, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrected body is described in detail in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 John 3.2, promising all resurrected believers that we shall be like him as he is. So understand that the resurrection talked about in the Old Testament was incomplete, but the New Testament completes that thought. And the fourth Old Testament doctrine or truth that needed to be laid aside was eternal judgment. Again, we know very little about eternal judgment in the Old Testament, but as we know in the New Testament, the New Covenant, eternal judgment is fully explained, and it completes our understanding of what it means. So the solution boiled down to the fact that these unbelieving Jews, although they had head knowledge, did not have heart knowledge, need to lay aside the milk or the elementary shadows or symbols of the Old Testament and embrace the complete, mature, perfect reality in the new covenant through Christ. So there's the problem. There's the solution. Now two more points in our text this morning. So turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. And we're going to begin this morning by looking at verses 4 and 5 and, and uh, finishing up our message this morning on this particular passage of Scripture. How about the warning? And this is where he's given them the problem, he's given them the solution, now he's going to give them the warning. Read with me in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Very important passage of Scripture. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, notice that these intellectual Jews, they knew about Jesus, they had had knowledge, and they had five great advantages. But I want you to notice in this passage there is no reference at all to salvation, which means, again, it's not written to Christians. And we're going to look at that in detail. First of all, the first of the great advantages, they were enlightened. Now this phrase here, notice the phrase, once enlightened. They were at one time, obviously, enlightened about Christ, enlightened about the gospel. And I will tell you that no term that's used in the New Testament for salvation is found here. There, we don't see sanctified, we don't see redeemed, we don't see born again. Again, no reference to Christians, but to spiritually intellectual Jews who weren't redeemed and have hardened their hearts toward faith in Christ. These unredeemed Jews, by the way, had all the experiences necessary to embrace Christ by faith. This enlightenment, and again, notice again that word, very simple word, once enlightened, this enlightenment was basically intellectual knowledge, spiritual, biblical truth. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, it's translated to give light by knowledge or teaching. It means literally to be aware of something, to be instructed, to be informed. They were informed. They were instructed. They were made aware of something through the gospel message. But the word carries no connotation of response, of acceptance or rejection, of belief or unbelief. Think about it when Jesus first came to Galilee to minister. He quoted the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And here's what that prophecy says. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. That's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. Now the fact was that all in Galilee, right, saw and heard Jesus. They saw the great light, understand, but not all who saw and heard were born again. 
Now, I'm going to give you an example of that. We can all go out today to HEB, all of us at one time, right? Uh, I go about uh, 6 o'clock. Y'all meet me there. We can all go to HEB together. And HEB really, I think, would be changed for a few minutes, right? I mean, people see us as light. We are the light of the gospel, are we not? We are the salt of the earth. People see that, and they experience that. But just because they see the light doesn't mean they embrace the light. I mean, Galilee, they saw Jesus. They heard his message. They saw God's truth incarnate, an opportunity only a few thousand people had in all of history. Think about it. They witnessed the light of the gospel that broke through the darkness. Yet according to John chapter 12, verses 37 through 40, most did not believe it, and they left him. They departed. They deserted Jesus. The same thing happened to these Jews. They were once enlightened, but they were not born again. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And I want to read for you verses 20 through 21. 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. Listen to what the writer says here. For if after they had escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. You understand that? See that great illustration that's used in Peter? You see, these Jews, unredeemed as they were, had once been enlightened with knowledge. They had probably attended church a few times. They had once been affected by the gospel. They knew that Jesus died on the cross. They knew that he rose again three days later, yet they still were not saved. Secondly, they had tasted of the heavenly gift. And this heavenly gift could be one of two things, and it could refer to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is spoke in the next sentence. So since it's mentioned specifically, I can say that. Say that about ten times, see what happens to you. It doesn't appear to be referring to the Holy Spirit at all. The greatest heavenly gift is who? Jesus Christ himself, right? Jesus called God's indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians 9.15. And the salvation that Jesus brought, according to Ephesians 2.8, is our heavenly gift. Our Lord's salvation, would you agree with me this morning, is the supreme heavenly gift. That is our gift from God. And this great gift, however, wasn't received and it wasn't feasted upon. Notice that word. They had tasted the heavenly gift. It was only sampled or tasted. It was not accepted and lived, only examined. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4.10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Remember that story? Now notice Jesus was speaking of the water that leads to everlasting life, John 2.14. And those who drank it, not just sipped it, or not just tasted it, but drank it, would receive what? Eternal life, right? Later on in John chapter 6, verse 51, y'all follow me so far? Jesus says that he's the living bread. And you have to eat of the living bread. And if you eat of the living bread, you will live forever. Now listen, 
I love fresh baked bread. And it loves me. It's amazing how it sticks around my gut. But when I get a piece of bread, I don't just take a little crumb and it's pretty good. I take a full slice, baby. The whole thing. And if Reno doesn't get to it before I do, I'll get to all of it by the end of the week. Now listen, I'm consuming that bread. And that's what Jesus says. You need to drink the living water. You need to eat of the living bread. Now let me correct to you and correct for you a false Catholic teaching. And there's a lot of them. During communion in the Catholic Church, they believe that the bread turns into literally the body of Christ and that the wine literally turns into the blood of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. It's a big word, one of those big theological words, right? These verses that talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 59, were not literal, but they had spiritual significance. Just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, right? Also belief in his sacrificial death of the cross was necessary for eternal life. You are eating and you're drinking in a symbolic sense. Jesus, you're not just tasting of what he offers, but you're taking him fully in, in a very symbolic way. Now, here's what's so crazy about this. When you look at John chapter 6, verses 53 through 59, when you look at that, his reference, our Lord's reference, could not have been referring to communion. Why? First of all, communion had not even been instituted yet, right? And second, if Jesus had been referring to communion, then the passage would teach that anyone partaking in communion would receive eternal life. It doesn't. Now, can I be honest with you? All the priests, all the cardinals, all the bishops, and the pope himself and the Catholic Church are obviously not biblical scholars. Or they wouldn't ignore all the rules of interpretation of Scripture, along with the rules of Hebrew and Greek language. In other words, can I say this to you? I'm going to say it anyway. They just make up what they think is right, and they are dead wrong. And it leads many down the road to destruction. The tasting only came from what they had seen and heard, but yet they weren't born again. Some of you may be sitting today in your chair, and you're not saved, you're not a Christian, you're unredeemed, you're not born again. But you are getting knowledge, right? You're being enlightened. You were once enlightened. And you're also, understand this, you're also sampling, right, the heavenly gift. Keep following me. They have partaken of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, that word partake means association, not possession. He didn't say possession. That word in the Greek means association. In other words, these unredeemed Jews never possessed the Holy Spirit. They just happened to be around when he was around. Does that make sense? You come to church, you're not saved, and you just happen to be around people where the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts. You just happen to be around them. You don't have the Holy Spirit in you, but you're associated with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of people around you. And in the context of Hebrews 6, 4, it refers to anyone who has been where the Holy Spirit is ministering or has been ministering. You understand that? In other words, we know that every Sunday, there are probably one or perhaps more people that are in church that share in what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of people as we worship the Lord. But they're not saved. Well, they see people saved. They hear testimonies of people who've been saved. They hear the Word of God through the Holy Spirit, but aren't any more saved than a goose caught in a hailstorm. By the way, I don't know whether you've ever seen a goose in a hailstorm. But they're as lost as a goose in a hellstorm. Make sense? They've not been saved. Think about it. The Bible never mentions Christians being associated with the Holy Spirit. 
but instead it speaks of the Holy Spirit being within us. We possess the Holy Spirit living in us. As Christians, we possess the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? We don't just associate with the Holy Spirit. We possess the Holy Spirit within us. You see the difference? Number four, they had tasted the good word of God. Some of you are here today. You're tasting the good word of God. The Greek term used for word here is very interesting. It's rima, and it emphasizes only parts of the word and not the whole. What am I talking about? Well, the Greek term for God's word is usually logos, and it fits the meaning in this contest of using it as rima because as with Jesus, God's heavenly gift, they had tasted or merely sampled the word of God in part and not the whole. They had heard the word of God read. They had sampled the word of God. They tasted a part of the Word of God, but they never internalized God's Word. They had been taught. They had probably come regularly to church. They had listened, perhaps carefully thought about what they had heard, perhaps even took it with enthusiasm and appreciation. However, they could not say with the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. They couldn't say that couple of characters in the Bible that fit this description. King Herod was like this. In spite of John the Baptist's hard messages, according to Mark 6.20, he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist preach. He was perplexed and even fascinated by this dynamic preacher. I mean, he liked to sample the message of God. But when he was pressed into a decision to follow Jesus, what did he do? He forsook God's messenger and God's message and reluctantly but willingly agreed to have John beheaded. Herod was like that. Oh, he heard. He even kind of enjoyed hearing John the Baptist. But yet later on, he had him beheaded. The same thing happened to King Agrippa. Remember King Agrippa in, in Acts chapter 25 and 26? As Paul was brought in front of him, Paul shared the gospel, shared Jesus with him. And in Acts 26, verses 27 through 29, Paul asked Agrippa this question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost persuade? He wasn't there yet, was he? And by, In fact, if you look back in the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great who killed James and had imprisoned Paul in prison there, had been eaten by worms, remember? Because he had paraded himself in front of the people claiming to be God. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 24. So this Herod, this Herod that Paul witnesses to, Herod Agrippa II, died at 70 years of age and was the last ruler from the house of Herod. And here's the sad news. There is no indication he ever came to Jesus by faith. Almost persuaded. I like hearing you, Paul. You're a very interesting character. I like hearing the, but I'm not going to give my life to Jesus. And as a result, when he died, he joined his wicked father in hell for all eternity because he was almost persuaded. Tasting the word of God. Number five, they had tasted the powers of the age to come. Hey, listen, that's something to see. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the powers of the kingdom, the miracle powers, the miracles they'd seen done by the apostles. Those things that were just miraculous. They'd seen those things. The, the Jews had tasted them, seen for themselves. They witnessed the apostles do wonders and signs among the early church. And the more they saw it, they just tasted it. They witnessed these miracles without receiving the power from the ultimate miracle worker, Jesus himself. So the more their hearts were hardened. An Old Testament example. When you read the Old Testament, you think, man, if I had just been there, right? If I would just been part of the Israelites. Man, I, I would have believed. I mean, 
God parted the Red Sea, right? If we could just seen it, then I'd believe. Or they'll say, man, if I just lived in Jesus' day, man, if I'd seen the miracles, I'd have followed Jesus. Would you? Many did not. But they'd seen God part the Red Sea. They'd seen God provide food and water along in their wilderness journey. Yet when they got to the edge, listen, when they got to the edge of entering the promised land, what happened? Instead, they believed those faithless and fearful spies. And the result was that generation never entered into the promised land, but instead died off in the wilderness. They got to the edge. Man, it looks like they were going to come into the promised land, but they never made it. And they'd seen God. They'd seen God do these things. And though there were giants in the land that God was going to give them, they became fearful. Well, we can't defeat them. We're just like grasshoppers. After what God had done, you see what happens? You, they're almost there. I mean, they had tasted the powers of the age to come. They had witnessed, they had heard, they experienced, but still did not believe Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. Here's what it says. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again, put to themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Take verse 4, the first part of verse 4, for it is impossible for those, right, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. That's what it means. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. Because a lot of people have a question about this particular part of, of the Scripture. And I want to try to explain it to you so that you can understand it for yourself. These unbelieving Jews were at the best point of repentance they'd ever been in. They had full knowledge. And to fall back from that full knowledge would be fatal. It's not believers who can lose their salvation he's talking about. It's actually unbelievers who are at great risk of losing the opportunity to ever receive it. These Jews, these unbelieving Jews were in great danger because of their spiritual immaturity, because they were sluggish, they were dull of hearing, they were in danger of turning back to Judaism and, have, and never ever been able to get back and repent and come to Christ. They were spiritually at the point of no return. Where are you today? Oh, you've heard the gospel. You've heard Jesus. You know what he's done for you on the cross. Here's a fact. Listen to this. Anyone who is so well informed, you've witnessed to many of what God has done. You've been blessed to have opportunity to know about Jesus and be born again. But only you've sampled it. And guess what? You're still eternally lost. And you keep rejecting Jesus and rejecting Jesus and rejecting Jesus and rejecting. No, I'll wait till next. No, rejecting Jesus. Listen, finally, there's no way for you to come to repentance. That's what it means by the unpardonable sin. You reject him, you reject him. No, 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 no. It's impossible they fall away to renew them again to repentance. This harsh reality cannot be minimized. By the way, some have translated the word impossible as difficult in order to say that this passage is speaking of Christians who can lose their salvation and get it back again. But listen, this word, the word impossible, means impossible. It's the same Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament and other passages in Hebrews, Hebrews 6.18, Hebrews 10.4, Hebrews 11.6. All three of these passages would not make any sense if impossible was changed to difficult. That's the harsh finality of judgment. And this term, to renew, means to restore or to bring back to original condition. The original condition of these unbelieving Jews was that they had excitement when they first heard the gospel. They had moved from Judaism right up to the very edge of Christianity, right to the very edge of the promised land. 
They even tried to repent from their dead works, yet it was impossible to ever renew them again to repentance. They had the advantage of knowing God through the Old Covenant. They had seen and experienced all the beauty and perfection of the New Covenant. If they now fell away, there was never any hope they could be restored to the place where the gospel was fresh, where the gospel was sweet, where repentance was the proper response. Listen, when one rejects Jesus at the peak experience of knowledge and conviction, he or she will not and cannot accept it at a lesser level. Do you understand that? If you receive it, if you hear it now and you're not saved, you better do it now. Because salvation could become impossible. And notice they crucified themselves again, the Son of God. Something means that as far as they were concerned, the Son of God deserved to be crucified. Just like that crowd. Crucify him, crucify him, release Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. So they bring themselves back into that same area, that same thinking. And that word shame here denotes guilt. In other words, they were really declaring openly that Jesus was an imposter, imposter a deceiver. He was guilty as charged. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Here's what the Bible says. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace? That's the question. How much more worse will the punishment be? That's what he's talking about. Now the illustration. He gives an illustration here, verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. All those here of the gospel are like the earth. The rain falls upon the seed that was planted. There's nourishment, there's growth, there's fruit. Or, like in South Texas, there's those sticker birds everywhere. The water falls on the same ground. It's the same water but it brings forth thorny, destructive, and worthless weeds, rejecting the life that was offered and become only good for burning. D.L. Moody, the powerful preacher and evangelist in the late 1800s, said this, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. How true that is. It is dangerously self-deceptive for a person who thinks by holding off deciding to follow Jesus, by thinking himself or herself tolerant of the gospel, simply because they don't outwardly oppose it, that he or she is safe. Yet the longer they stay on the edge of making a decision to follow Jesus, the more they tend to lean toward their old life of sin. Staying there too long inevitably results in falling away from the gospel forever. A warning that cannot be ignored because it deals with one's eternal destiny. Where do you plan to spend eternity? Well, I haven't given it much thought. You better start giving it much thought, because one day you're going to take your final breath, or one day Jesus is going to come for the church, and you're going to be left behind. What is your decision to do? Think about that. A warning. Now the appeal. After the severest of warnings, comes from the author the most loving appeal. The writer of Hebrews was earnestly praying that these unbelieving, spiritually intellectual Jews would then find the truth, that they would not become apostate. And his approach in these next few verses was to introduce them to the true Christians in their midst in order for the example of faith to be a testimony to those still on the edge of following Jesus. So he gives a brief word to the believers who are to be imitated. Verse 9 of chapter 6. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Notice the kind of the, the transition there. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner, 
Now that term beloved refers to believers, obviously. This term expresses the highest kind of relationship among Christians. It's used 60 times in the New Testament. So the writer was obviously convinced that these beloved brethren that he's about to talk about possess all the things that accompany salvation and that they would be superb examples for their yet unbelieving friends to observe and imitate. Things that accompany salvation, he says. How many things accompany salvation? Well, we can read the, the entire fifth and sixth chapter of Hebrews, and especially in this section that we just looked at, they contrast the things that accompany unbelief. For example, accompany salvation is not infancy, but it's maturity. It is not milk, but it's solid food. It's not unrighteousness, but righteousness. It's not repentance from dead works, but repentance toward God and Christ unto life. They reflect internal regeneration, internal change, internal transformation, born again, leading to eternal life. And the fact is that these terms point to fact that the writer's audience has now changed, right? Remember, he was talking to unbelievers. Now who is he talking about? The believers. Of those who they who he wants them to imitate, to see. Because I will tell you that all the believers now in, in that church, all the Jews that believe, they had also come from Judaism. They had also turned and set aside these things to come to Jesus. And he wanted them to hear about them. I will tell you that in every church, according to Jesus' parable, there are wheat, the wheat and the tares. Remember Jesus said, the angel said, what do you want us to go and pluck out the tares? No, 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 leave them there until judgment. I'll take care of the tares. But in every church, there is wheat and there's tares. Unbelievers, tares, wheat, believers. And this is why the author concludes this verse with the phrase, though we are speaking in this manner, Literally, it can be paraphrased as this. Beloved fellow Christians, though we've been speaking about these awful and fearful warnings to unbelievers, we know that far better things apply to you. You have the accompaniments of salvation, not of unbelief. These warnings to apostates and potential apostates are put in this letter to you because these people are in your midst. And we want you to set the example for them. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, as he continues. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Talking again about these Christians that he wants them to set the example for these unchristians, for the unbelievers. I will tell you that God never forgets his own. Did you know that? He knows who belongs to him. He knows those who are really faithful. He knows his own and the work that they've done for him. It does not go unnoticed. And I will tell you that sometimes you come into a church and they start asking you to volunteer for things and to do ministries. Listen, God knows the faithful. God knows his own, right? There are many Christians today as throughout history, they experience times of doubt when it comes to their salvation. And we've all, I think, if you can, if you can agree with me, uh, th there's been times in my life when I've doubted whether I'm saved or not. Uh, any of you have that problem? Don't lie in front of God. I bet you every one of, one of you have experienced that, thinking, well, I mean, I just heard a sermon, and uh, am I saved? Am I not saved? Right? You, you've heard those things? A believer cannot lose their salvation. God knows who we are. God knows his sheep. God knows his own. What causes doubt when it comes to your salvation? Those that continually don't have assurance of their salvation, at least I have found, do not know what it means to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus finished it. And we're not resting in that finished work. And not only are you not resting in the finished work of Jesus, you're not resting in your positional standing in Him before God. 
Listen, you have been made righteous. You have been made a child of God. You have been made, you, you are a, a, a lover of God now. And listen, God places you there. God places you in front of God, in front of Jesus and says, listen, you are who you are. Listen, aren't you glad we don't have our own righteousness because our own righteousness, it looks like filthy rags. We need to throw it away and take the righteousness of Jesus on us so that we can rest in our position in front of the Almighty God. Right? Stop letting the devil Tell you what to believe and what not to believe. Listen, you are secure in your salvation. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, which the Bible says is a guarantee from God that you're saved and you're going to heaven when you die. Our faith is demonstrated also by our works. Did you know we're not saved by works? But our faith demonstrates our works. We do things for the kingdom of God because we love God. We love Jesus. We don't do them because we're trying to get saved or trying to earn favor with God. They just naturally come. Because remember what James says, faith without works is dead. And he says here, love for and serving the brethren is evidence of your salvation. But here the author says that even more significant evidence of love is shown toward his name. In other words, God knows when our service is truly for his glory or whether it's done out of love for his name. Right? He knows that. It's important as to love fellow Christians, as he says here. It's more important to love God. You know why? Because if you can't love God, you can't love others. If you don't love God, you can't, you can't minister to others. That's what the greatest commandment tells us. Without loving God first and foremost, with all that we have and all that we are, we would not be able to love one another or others as we should. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Can't do it. So the fact is that keeping God as our focus and our first love not only gives us the desire and power to love others and serve them, but it sustains us in our love and service. And notice his name. I'm going to tell you something that just frustrates me. I'm going to tell you right now. There's a lot of things that frustrate me. When you are praying, when you are praying at the end of your prayer. Don't say, in his name I pray, amen. His name. Where's your power gone? It better be in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And I, listen, when I'm at the school board, when I'm praying with the school, or when I'm with those athletes on Friday night, I don't say, in his name I pray, amen. Oh, no, no, no. They know where I stand. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Because there's power in his name. And I know some of you do that, and, and I don't mean to jump on you, but listen, whose name are we praying in? It could be anybody's name, his name. Is it Joe? Is it Harry? Is it his name? Jesus' name his name that changes lives. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, and we will be finished. And uh, by the way, uh, hang with me. Uh, just hang with me. That's all I can say to you. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Once again speaking, to those unbelievers, to imitate what they see. And the hope is extended for them to become imitators of the true believer that was just described by becoming true believers themselves. And that word diligence, by the way, carries the idea of eagerness or haste. And that suggestion is that these unbelieving Jews better get to faith quickly and truly be born again. And God, God, God knows this, right? All it takes is a simple act of faith. All it takes. I believe in Jesus. 
I believe he died on the cross, my sins. I believe that he's going to rise again from the dead. I believe simple act of faith is what gets you saved for all eternity. And then living out that faith with Christ as well. Salvation, by the way, is an instantaneous experience. Once you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Saved. You're saved. If you really believe that, you're saved. Now, if you if you say that up here in front and, and you say, I've been saved, well, praise God. But you know what I always say about people that come forward? And I don't mean to be critical, but here's what I say. We'll see. We'll see. I don't know they're true. I don't know their true heart. I mean, they say that they're saved, but but we'll see. Time will tell. Salvation is instantaneous. It's a lifelong journey as well. Aren't you glad that he does? I wonder today, you're here. You've already heard the message. You're on the edge of receiving Christ, following Jesus. You want to follow him. Are you sincere today? Are you ready to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior? I don't want you left behind, and I sure don't want you to die without Christ. God wants you to come to repentance, true repentance in him. Once you do that this morning, we invite you to come and do so. And we'll rejoice over your decision. And make sure it's a real decision. Make sure that you're not just coming up here to say, well, I'm a, I think I'm going to. I, I might. But, you know, I, I still like the bar during the week. I still like going and getting drunk. I, I, still, like, I still like the worldly stuff. But, but I'm going to follow Jesus. Are you? Are you really going to follow Jesus and lay everything down? And let him take care of all those sins. Are you going to this morning? That's the invite today. Sure, we're all tempted. Sure, we all sin. We all fail God. But I've got good news for you today. We have a Savior. We have a Savior that will forgive you. We have a Savior that will cleanse you. We have a Savior that will restore you. We have a Savior that will redeem you for all eternity. Once you turn your life over to Christ today. Perhaps today you're here. You're a Christian. You love the Lord. But uh, you just need to pray. Maybe there's relationship problems, family problems, things going on in your life. We'd love to pray with you and, and seek God's face together. We'd, we'd be glad to do so today if that's your prayer. We had several people this morning that joined Oak Hills Community Church as members. If you're one of those today and you've not made your membership public, uh, why don't you come and we'll introduce you to the church. We'd love to do that. God is good good all the time. And may God receive the glory for his word and for the words that have been spoken today. And may his Holy Spirit continue to speak to your heart. Let's stand together and pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you've taught us. Lord, it's been a lot this morning as it is always in the book of Hebrews. But Father God, I pray that you'll once again use your word to bring people to yourself. Father, thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As God speaks to your heart this morning, you come as we sing.